Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. Historically, the growth of intensive care units has been closely linked to polymyelitis and the need its patients has had for prolonged mechanical ventilation support with the iron lung at the initial of these epidemics. With the development of the South vaccine, this problem has disappeared from our clinical practice. Today, the Guillain-Barre syndrome and myasthenia gravis account for the majority of patients requiring intensive care admission due to acute neuromuscular weakness. In today's episode of Critical Matters, we will discuss critical care aspects of these acute neuromuscular disorders. Our guest is Dr. Cameron Arthur. Dr. Arthur is a trained in critical care medicine and neurocritical care. He's a practicing neurointensivist at the Farber Institute of Neuroscience in Philadelphia. Dr. Arthur is an assistant professor of medicine and of neurology at the Jefferson School of Medicine in Philadelphia. He has published extensively in the field and is an excellent clinical educator. Cameron, welcome to Critical Matters. Thank uh, you, Sergio, for this kind introduction, and thanks for the opportunity to participate in this uh, podcast. So I think that we, we might start by making a, a differentiation. Today, most of the patients that have neuromuscular weakness in the ICU have acquired it in the ICU in what we know as critical care-induced myopathy, neuropathy, or neuromyopathy, which is more of a chronic consequence of critical illness. But what we really want to talk about today, Cameron, is those patients who present with acute neuromuscular weakness that require admission to the ICU. So perhaps a great place to start would be for you to give us a little bit of a differential diagnosis of that patient that presents to the ED or to the hospital with acute neuromuscular weakness. Uh, yes, uh, thanks, Sergio. That's a very important uh, uh, question. So uh, the differential diagnosis uh, of acute neuromuscular weakness leading to uh, ICU admission is fairly extensive. Uh, the most important conditions to be considered uh, are the acute polyneuropathies of Guillain-Barre syndrome is the most uh, common one uh, that uh, uh, for which these patients require admission to the ICU. Uh, other causes of acute polyneuropathies less uh, commonly seen include uh, severe thiamine deficiency, acute arsenic poisoning, uh, Lyme disease, vasculitis, uh, glue sniffing, uh, porphyrias. Uh, which typically pre present with uh, psychiatric manifestations in addition to neuropathy as well as unexplained GI symptoms. Uh, Miller-Fisher syndrome is a subtype uh, or clinical variant of Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, which is also an acute polyneuropathy that frequently requires uh, ICU admission. In addition, uh, other conditions that should be kept in mind in the differential are neuromuscular disorders, such as myasthenia gravis, uh, Lambert-Eaton syndrome and uh, botulism, myasthenia um, gravis being the most common of the neuromuscular disorders. In addition, uh, motor neuron disorders such as poliomyelitis, West Nile virus encephalitis, uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or uh, as well as uh, progressive spinal muscle atrophy are also uh, in the differential. Uh, in addition, uh, certain brainstem conditions which can mimic uh, Miller-Fisher uh, syndrome uh, should always be on the differential as well. Uh, these include uh, brainstem strokes, which typically are uh, acute in onset, as well as uh, brainstem encephalitis. Uh, other conditions uh, affecting spinal cord should also be considered in the differential, uh, such as the acute myelopathies, uh, the most common causes of which are uh, cord compression and transverse myelitis. Uh, typically, in these patients on exam, there will be a sensory level uh, as well as involvement of uh, bowel and bladder. Uh, in so addition, uh, yes. Go ahead. In addition, myopathies such as uh, polymyositis and dermatomyositis uh, are also uh, included in the differential diagnosis of acute neuromuscular weakness. So clearly, Cameron, I mean, a very extensive list of potential causes, all of which are very rare for the common practicing intensivist. But I do think that in terms of how you would initiate the workup, are there some basic diagnostic tools that might help the clinician, where it be in the ED or in the ICU, kind of guide the, the, the diagnosis in the right direction? Uh, so in addition to the clinical presentation, 
there are a number of diagnostic modalities available uh, to us, uh, uh, which in the appropriate clinical setting are uh, helpful in uh, establishing a diagnosis. These include uh, lumbar puncture with uh, analysis of the cerebrospinal fluid, uh, electrodiagnostic studies such as uh, EMG and nerve conduction studies, uh, as well as uh, in uh, the appropriate clinical setting, uh, single fiber EMG, uh, as well as repetitive nerve stimulation testing. Uh, and in addition, MRI of the brain and spinal cord can also help in uh, excluding uh, certain other causes uh, of uh, uh, muscle weakness. Uh, serologic testing is also uh, important in certain cases, uh, especially uh, myasthenia gravis and the Miller-Fisher variant of Guillain-Barre syndrome. So in terms of uh, deciding where these patients need to go to an ICU or, or another type of setting, what are some of the reasons why patients with acute neuromuscular weakness might benefit from ICU admission, and what are the things that you would recommend our critical care colleagues to have in mind? Yeah, so the most uh, uh, most important indication for ICU admission for these patients is typically respiratory failure uh, requiring endotracheal intubation and ventilatory support. Uh, in Especially in cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome, up to 20 to 30 percent of the patients will need ventilatory support at some point during their disease course. In addition, in some cases, uh, especially in patients with Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, autonomic dysfunction can occasionally be severe enough that uh, they will require closed ICU monitoring. Uh, additionally, significant bulbar dysfunction uh, in some patients uh, with inability to clear their secretions increase the risk of aspiration, and these patients are also uh, these patients also require closed monitoring in the, into ICU because they can progress to um, uh, aspiration, uh, pneumonia, and progress to respiratory failure. So I think that to recap, the real three big things are potential for respiratory failure, oropharyngeal weakness, and autonomic dysfunction. And I think as we speak more specifically about Guillain-Barre myasthenia gravis, we'll dive into these again. So why don't we go to Guillain-Barre syndrome? Like you mentioned earlier, it's one of the most common reasons why patients with acute neuromuscular disease will come to the ICU. And maybe start by telling us a little bit about just how you think about Guillain-Barre in general, its incidence, and maybe what, what, what we understand today of its pathophysiology. Right. So, so Guillain-Barre syndrome is the most common cause of acute neuromuscular weakness. And uh, under Guillain-Barre syndrome are included a number of uh, immune-mediated acute polyneuropathies. And is, uh, most often it presents as an acute monophasic condition that is typically preceded by an infectious illness. Uh, it is recognized now as a heterogeneous condition with several variant forms, and I will mention a little bit about those variant forms, variant forms in a little bit. Uh, in terms of epidemiology, uh, the overall incidence is about one to two per 100,000 population per year, and uh, it uh, is slightly more common in males uh, compared to uh, females. And it's also more common as people get older, right? I mean, there seems to be a, a spike, I mean, as people get, uh, get age as well. Is that correct? That is correct. So it has been estimated that there is, uh, beyond the first decade of life, there is a 10% uh, increase in the incidence for every 10 year uh, uh, beyond the first decade of life. So the de incidence definitely increases with age. And you mentioned that often it's preceded by an infectious disease. Uh, very commonly, uh, Campylobacter dejuni has been uh, uh, implicated with gastrointestinal, but there's also respiratory and any other uh, viruses or bacteria that are commonly being associated with Guillain-Barre? Yes, so as you mentioned, uh, Sergio, uh, Campylobacter jejuni is the most commonly identified precipitant of Guillain-Barre syndrome. However, uh, certain other viruses, especially cytomegalovirus, HIV, Epstein-Barr virus, and Zika virus have also been implicated uh, uh, as precipitants for Guillain-Barre syndrome. And that's why it's kind of, kind of considered as a post-infectious condition. Uh, cases have also been reported following certain immunizations, uh, and that's always important in the history as well. Uh, and uh, 
uh, as I said, I mean, uh, it's considered as a post-infectious condition. And what happens is that these infectious agents induce antibody productions, production. And these antibodies are then directed against certain components of peripheral nerves because of molecular mimicry. Uh, specifically, these include the ganglioside and glycolipid components of the peripheral nerves, which then results in lymphocytic infiltration, macrophage-mediated stripping of the myelin, and that's why it's uh, kind of considered a demyelinating process. In more severe cases, damage to the axons can occur. And the end result of all of this is that there is uh, defective propagation of electrical impulses uh, resulting in flaccid paralysis. So that, in a nutshell, is sort of the pathophysiology of Guillain-Barre syndrome. And, and I've read a lot about, like, the differentiation of uh, uh, subtypes from a pathophysiology standpoint with the acute inflammatory demyelinating polyradical neuropathy, ADIP, versus acute motor axonal neuropathy, AMAN. Mm -hmm. Is that mm -hmm. mostly in terms of understanding pathogenesis, but ultimately from a clinical perspective, does it have an implication of how we treat them? Uh, so in terms of, it, it has more of prognostic significance. The treatment uh, options for all these uh, various uh, subtypes uh, or variants of GBS essentially the same. Uh, AIDP or acute inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, as you mentioned, is the most common variant. In the US and Europe, about 85 to 9% of the cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome are due to AIDP, uh, followed by the Miller-Fisher variant, uh, which accounts for about 10% of the cases in US and Europe. And the classic triad is ophthalmoplegia, ataxia, and aeroflexia. Uh, acute motor axonal neuropathy and uh, acute motor sensory axonal neuropathy are more severe forms uh, of uh, injury to the peripheral nerves because the axons are involved. So they typically tend to have more severe weakness and the time to recovery also tends to be prolonged. Uh, and that's why sometimes it's important uh, to differentiate uh, what subtype are we dealing with which may be important for prognostication purposes. Excellent. And in terms of clinical presentation, you mentioned how one of the variants, very well-known Miller-Fisher syndrome, would present with the ataxia, reflexia, and ophthalmoplegia, often with diplopia. Why don't you tell us, Cameron, what's the typical clinical presentation of a patient who comes to the hospital because of acute neuromuscular weakness from Guillain-Barre, and how do we usually make that diagnosis initially? Right. So the cardinal feature of Guillain-Barre syndrome clinically is progressive and fairly symmetric muscle weakness along with absent or significantly depressed deep tendon reflexes. And the, these patients typically present a few days to a week after onset of symptoms and uh, bowel and bladder function usually preserved in GBS. Uh, in about 50% of the patients, there is also weakness of the facial muscles as well as oropharyngeal weakness causing bulbar dysfunction. Uh, in about 10% of the patients, the weakness may begin in the arms or facial muscles uh, because typically or classically it is recognized as an ascending paralysis or ascending weakness where the weakness starts in the lower extremities and sort of uh, uh, goes up to involve the respiratory muscles and the upper extremities. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, in up to 30% of the patients, the respiratory muscle weakness can be severe enough that they will require endotracheal intubation and mechanical ventilation. Some other features that should that, also be... Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. I was going to say uh, that some in other terms of just recapping, the ascending symmetric paralysis is really something that should make the clinician who's not used to seeing these cases very tuned in that this is probably Guillain-Barre. Correct. And also, uh, you know, reflexes, uh, areflexia or significantly depressed uh, deep tendon, tendon reflexes are also uh, kind of point to uh, uh, the diagnosis of Guillain-Barre syndrome. And uh, in the, if you look at the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke diagnostic criteria, progressive weakness and areflexia are required features, along with other supportive features. When you say progressive, can you give me an idea of the time frame? So if somebody's had weakness for, for months, probably not Guillain-Barre, right? Right, yeah. So in the, uh, uh, typically in these patients, after the onset of symptoms, 
they typically progress over a period of few weeks. And in most patients, about 90% of the patients that symptoms have reached their nadir by anywhere between two and four weeks. If these patients continue to progress with their weakness, or if their symptoms continue to progress beyond that period of time, you should be thinking about other causes of uh, uh, neuromuscular weakness. And, uh, you know, um, beyond eight weeks, typically, we should be thinking more if we have, especially on EMG electrodiagnostic testing, some demyelinating pattern, then we should be probably thinking about a diagnosis of chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyradiculoneuropathy. Excellent. And uh, uh, two more questions regarding the diagnosis. One related mm -hmm. uh, to the physical exam, and uh, obviously grading the amount of weakness is going to be very important in triage and understanding what treatments have to be implemented. Um, what is uh, the, the commonly accepted scale? I think that I've read that the British Medical Research Council scale is what people recommend for muscle strength. Could you just review that for our listeners very quickly, Cameron? Sure, yeah. So the British Medical Research Council uh, grading system for muscle strength is widely used. And uh, what the examiner does is he assesses the patient's ability to move the muscle against resistance, which is provided by the examiner. And the patient's effort is graded on a scale of zero to five. So grade five is that the muscle contracts normally against full resistance. Grade four is when the muscle strength is reduced. However, muscle contraction can still move the joints against resistance. Mus grade three is when muscle strength is reduced to the point that the joint cannot can be moved only against gravity with the examiner's resistance completely removed. Grade two is the muscle can only move if the resistance of gravity is removed. And in grade one, only a trace or flicker of movement is seen or felt in the muscle, or you can observe, uh, or you may observe fasciculations in the muscle. And grade zero is when there is absolutely no movement in the muscle. So in terms of considering severe weakness, anything be below three, three or below would be considered severe weakness acutely? That is correct, yes. And that's how it is uh, uh, when we say mild, moderate, or severe forms of Guillain-Barre syndrome, that's kind of what the, uh, it's based on the uh, muscle grading, strength grading uh, system. So anything below three is considered um, as severe. And the second question, you had mentioned earlier in the differential diagnosis and diagnostic tools, the use of an LP. So that is something obviously that's available immediately. Imaging, I understand it would be useful to exclude other causes, but not to make the diagnosis of Guillain-Barre. But could you comment on the CSF uh, that we find with Guillain-Barre typically? So the classic finding um, on CSF analysis in patients with Guillain-Barre syndrome is what we call albuminocytological dissociation, where you have an elevated CSF protein with a normal WBC or white blood cell count, typically less than five cells uh, per millimeter cube. Uh, as many as uh, 66 or two-thirds of the patients by week one will have this finding on CSF. And by week three, uh, more than 75 to 80% of the patients uh, will have um, albuminocytological dissociation on examination of their CSF. Uh, there was a, a series, prospective series done uh, at Mass General Hospital of 110 patients where they looked at their CSF profile. And what they found was that 87% uh, of these patients had a cell count of less than five and another 9% of the patients had a cell count between five and 10. So this is a, a, you know, a finding that is uh, fairly often seen and it's classic for uh, uh, patients with Guillain-Barre syndrome. So high protein and no cells or very low cells is what we're looking for. And also I guess it allows us to differentiate or test for other potential differential diagnosis, which I think is always that important. Is, that is correct, yes. Now, in terms of uh, uh, once we, we, we see the classical presentation, we make some initial diagnosis, let's say that we feel comfortable this is a Guillain-Barre syndrome patient, what would uh, prompt you in your practice, Cameron, to say this patient needs to go to the ICU? Yeah, it's a very important question because, you know, these patients, when, when they come in, initial triage is important. So uh, some studies have actually looked at uh, clinical predictors in these patients of the need for endotracheal intubation and mechanical ventilation. And uh, uh, so, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, in addition to uh, 
so some of these parameters are based on bedside assessments of respiratory muscle strength uh, or spirometry. So patients uh, who have a vital capacity of uh, uh, less than 20 ml per kg, these are patients who are likely or will likely need uh, in the tracheal intubation and catagonal ventilation. Uh, this is what we call sort of the 20, 30, 40 rule. So on spirometry, you assess their vital capacity, negative inspiratory force or maximal inspiratory force and maximum expiratory pressures. So uh, uh, a number of retrospective studies have shown that uh, a vital capacity less than 20, a negative inspiratory force less than 30 or a maximum expiratory pressure less than 40 uh, is likely going to result in the need for endotracheal intubation and mechanical ventilation. Um, and so these are some of the criteria that we use to initiate uh, uh, intubation and mechanical ventilation in these patients. And I think that this is very important because, the, like you mentioned, the 20-30-40 rule with uh, bedside spirometry is very important in predicting who will need intubation. But I, I would imagine that way before you get there, um, you want to put them in an ICU so that you're monitoring them, right? So this is not a these numbers that you mentioned would be like more in terms of crossing the threshold for intubation as opposed to crossing the threshold for let's put this patient in the ICU for close monitoring. Correct. Yeah. And actually, uh, there are uh, there is one fairly large study that actually has looked at very early predictor, predictors of the need for uh, mechanical ventilation. And uh, this was from the French cooperative group, group on plasma exchange and Guillain-Barre syndrome. And what they looked at were 700 plus patients uh, with Guillain-Barre syndrome who were enrolled in trials for uh, Guillain-Barre. And uh, the main outcome variable that they looked at was need for mechanical ventilation. And in the cohort, 43% of the patients required mechanical ventilation. And when they looked at the multivariate model, they identified six uh, predictors uh, uh, that uh, predicted the need for an intubation. One was time of onset to admission of less than seven days, which kind of uh, uh, goes on to shows you that the, these patients have a more aggressive course. Patients uh, who are unable to cough, unable to stand, unable to lift the elbows, above the bed, unable to lift their head. And then for some reason, they found that liver enzyme increase in this multivariate model. All these six variables were predictive of the need for endotracheal intubation and ventilation. And what they found was that if a patient at the time of uh, presentation had four out of these six predictors, more than 85% of the time, they required mechanical ventilation. And they so also looked at a subgroup. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say that we really should have a very low threshold when we see a patient who is acutely admitted and has the early phases of their of their syndrome because we don't know how they're going to respond to treatment or how they may deteriorate over the next couple of days, right? Yes, that is correct. And you know, and these six variables that they that they identify, they're very very simple uh, uh, bedside. Uh, exam uh, uh, bedside uh, maneuvers that you can do uh, to kind of triage patients, uh, you know, a very, very simple bedside test. Uh, in addition, also uh, an important feature of Guillain-Barre syndrome that kind of just differentiates it from myasthenia is that uh, some of these patients, a lot of these patients can actually, from a respiratory standpoint, may remain fairly stable. However, sudden respiratory decline is not uncommon. Uh, in these patients, so which again argues for close monitoring uh, in a more uh, intensive care setting for these patients, because then these patients will require or may require emergent intubation. And in terms of once they come to the ICU, obviously the monitoring is with serial uh, spirometry, since I presume that ABGs would be too late in terms of determining the, the need for intubation. Once they're hypoxemic and hypercapnic, we, we, we probably passed the time when we should have intubated that patient. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. Because, you know, uh, that if you, are, if you have hypoxemia and hypercarbia on ABG, then that already sort of indicates established respiratory failure as a result of respiratory muscle weakness. So that's kind of late in the game. Uh, and, and that's why these early predictors are important. Uh, uh, clinical uh, variables, as well as bedside spirometry testing. And the trends in these numbers, the bedside spirometry testing are, are more important. And, uh, you know, 
uh, and also they have to be interpreted in, in the appropriate clinical setting, looking at the whole big picture as well, uh, and also take into account bulbar dysfunction, ability to handle secretions, and all those things as well. Yeah. So then it's not only the absolute number, like you mentioned, with the 20, 30, 40 rule, but like a rapidly falling vital capacity might be as, as good as an indicator that the patient needs to be intubated as a vital capacity below 20, right? That is correct. Uh, always, you know, these numbers should be interpreted in the, uh, in the appropriate clinical setting, taking into, into account, as I said, uh, uh, the big picture, uh, sur- clinical clues like signs of respiratory muscle involvement or distress, and as well as trend in these measures, uh, uh, they have to be. And also, uh, one must also keep in mind that uh, that, uh, these numbers, although important, there are caveats because some patients who have facial muscle weakness may not be able to make a good seal, and sometimes these numbers can be, in those cases, misleading as well. So they're not perfect tests, and, I mean, and patient effort and also the quality of the testing, I guess, also can impact the numbers. So I think those are great points, Cameron, to, to make sure that people are aware of. So since we're talking about um, intubation and mechanical ventilation, let's just go down this rabbit hole a little bit more, and then I want to go backwards and talk about uh, other treatment modalities. So once the patient's intubated, uh, obviously, like you mentioned, uh, the course, especially very severe cases, can be prolonged. The good news is that the majority of patients will improve at one point, and many will will get back. I mean, maybe to a, to normal function. So it might be uh, you might be in for the long run. What are what are how, how do you think about weaning these patients, and when do you start thinking about tracheostomy in these patients, Cameron, in your practice? Yeah. So um, what, while these patients are intubated, we should following uh, their. Uh, again, their bedside uh, pulmonary function testing or spirometry values closely. And, uh, and again, decision to initiate weaning and proceed mental liberation should be individualized for each patient. Uh, you could consider uh, these patients as ready for mental liberation if they have objective evidence of improving respiratory muscle strength, because that is the most important uh, clinical uh, uh, feature. Uh, which would be shown by an improvement in their vital capacity, uh, as well as an improvement in their negative inspiratory force or maximal inspiratory pressure. So if the vital capacity is improving, is above 20 cc per kg, and the negative inspiratory force is more negative than negative 30, the patients on a spontaneous breathing trial, they do not appear fatigued, they're breathing comfortably, there are no signs of respiratory distress, their EBGs are relatively normal, uh, these are some of the patients whom you c- could uh, consider uh, activation trial. Uh, and also, again, you know, a lot of it depends upon clinicians' individual experience with this type of patient population. And uh, there is no like perfect way to uh, proceed with weaning in these patients. But some of the rules to remember are that weaning should proceed in a manner that prevents respiratory muscle fatigue and it allows for adequate rest between weaning trials. Excellent. And in terms of tracheostomy, um, a lot of these patients will be on mechanical ventilation for a prolonged period of time. So early tracheostomy makes sense if we can identify those patients. How do you approach this the, this decision? So uh, vent liberation kind of, w- w- the assumption is that those patients that are going to respond to a therapy and are going to start the recovery uh, process in a uh, uh, sort of reasonable amount of time that their respiratory muscle will improve, strength will improve, that will allow us to liberate these patients from the ventilator. From the ventilator. Uh, if that is not happening and uh, the PFTs or pulmonary function testing, is they're, they're, those numbers are not improving, probably after 10 days or so, these 10 to 14 days is sort of a cutoff these patients should probably be considered for tracheostomy because this patient population is likely going to have a much longer recovery time. Uh, However, if you see trends that show improvement over a period of time, those 10 to 14 day cutoff is not like uh, set in stone. You could, if you see a positive trend, maybe wait a few more days to allow more time for recovery of respiratory muscle strength and then uh, uh, 
uh, attempt mental liberation and maybe possibly avoid tracheostomy. So that's kind of like our, our general approach to these patients. And uh, you mentioned treatment. So why don't we, we talk a little bit about what are the currently accepted treatments for Guillain-Barre. There's been obviously a lot of discussion back and forth regarding plasma exchange versus IVIG and permutations of this. Why don't you just tell us what would be current state-of-the-art treatment and how you think about it? So um, uh, the treatment options available for Guillain-Barre syndrome are plasmapheresis or plasma exchange. Uh, and the other option available is intravenous immunoglobulin. Uh, a number of studies have looked at uh, IVIG versus uh, PLEX, and really there is uh, what we have found from all these trials is that they're equally efficacious. And the choice essentially between the and the number of factors, uh, local availability, patient preference, uh, if there are contraindications to one treatment modality versus the other, patient risk factors. So all those are factors that have to be taken into account. Uh, but uh, in terms of efficacy, both are equally efficacious. And in terms of uh, differentiating, I guess, with plasma exchange, obviously, the question is you have to put a dialysis catheter, there's an invasive procedure, but it might be available in, in certain settings where IVIG is not available. IVIG has a, an increased expense of the drug, there's been uh, some uh, call, uh, not call-outs, there's been like a, a limited availability of IVIG in certain situations, and in some institutions, it might not be uh, something that is readily available. So I guess those are things or factors that might that might uh, go into the decision-making as well, correct? That is correct, yes, absolutely. And, you know, especially, uh, although it's not as common, patients with the IV deficiency, if they are given IVIG, uh, they could develop uh, anaphylaxis, uh, so that would be a contraindication. In addition, I mean, IVIG is also, uh, there's a cost uh, uh, factor uh, that you mentioned. Uh, also, uh, it has some side effects or adverse events as well, uh, acute kidney injury, aseptic meningitis, uh, and sometimes intractable headaches. And also, it can uh, sort of occasionally induce a prothrombotic state. So all these factors have to be taken into account uh, in terms of uh, choice between plasma exchange and IVIG. And my understanding of the literature, uh, Cameron, I just want to make sure that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is that both IVIG and the plasma exchange, when studied against placebo and controlled studies, have shown to improve outcomes. That is and correct. So what? Go ahead. Yes, what they have, what the studies have shown is that they both uh, shorten uh, disease uh, duration and they uh, hasten recovery. So the time to recovery from the condition is shortened. So in, in some ways, they sort of uh, shorten the disease course. Uh, and uh, again, addition of IVIG after plasma exchange or vice versa, at least in studies, has not been shown to confer any significant extra benefit. And what about, um, and the studies have you said earlier, when they compare one against the other have shown no difference in favor of one in particular, but what about combining them for very severe cases? Is there any, any thoughts or studies on that? Uh, so the, the some studies have looked at a uh, combination uh, approach as well and found is that uh, in the studies show, uh, that were done, IVIG was used as after plasma exchange treatments had been done. And, uh, and the addition of IVIG did not actually confer any extra benefit um, in terms of recovery time and disease progression. So really no, no benefit as far as we know and combining them. And uh, I guess what I have understood from some of my neurocritical care and neurology uh, colleagues is that in very severe cases, what they might do is they might extend the treatment period with the modality they were using a little bit longer, but that is not based on any particular randomized trial, just kind of an expert opinion. That is correct. And, you know, again, it's sort of based on expert opinion, as you said, and also, you know, experience of the clinician, you know, uh, after your patients, uh, clinicians who take care of a lot of these patients uh, and uh, have more experience. And, you know, uh, so some of these decisions are based on their 
a clinical experience. So is there any role for corticosteroids in the Ambare? So that's a good question. And uh, uh, a number of uh, uh, systematic reviews and a meta-analysis that have looked at trials that uh, uh, used corticosteroids for patients with Guillain-Barre syndrome uh, have shown that uh, steroids do not hasten recovery from Guillain-Barre syndrome or affect the long-term outcome. And actually, there are a number of smaller trials which have shown that actually oral corticosteroids given to these patients may, in some cases, delay recovery. So as of now, uh, the way things stand, corticosteroids have no role in the management of patients with Guillain-Barre syndrome. And what about, we talked about, obviously, the, the most likely reason they will require critical care is mechanical ventilation support. But autonomic dysfunction can also cause severe problems and even mortality in these patients. Could you give us some comments on autonomic dysfunction and how you go about it in the ICU? Uh, yes, uh, uh, autonomic dysfunction or dysautonomia is a fairly well-recognized feature of Guillain-Barre syndrome, and it can be a cause of significant morbidity and mortality, and it can be seen in up to 70% of the patients with Guillain-Barre. Uh, the typical manifestations are tachycardia, uh, the most common, uh, sinus tachycardia. Uh, in addition, these patients can have urinary retention, uh, widely fluctuating blood pressures, alternating from hypertension to hypotension. They can also have orthostasis, uh, bradycardia, other cardiac arrhythmias, conduction abnormalities. Um, in addition, ileus and uh, loss of sweating has also be, been seen in these patients due to the dysautonomia. Uh, in about 20% of the patients, the autonomic of disturbances can be severe, and this is typically in patients who have more profound muscle weakness uh, and or respiratory failure. And, uh, and in these patients, they actually can be threatening uh, uh, the autonomic disturbances, and that's why these patients need to be very closely monitored in, in the intensive care setting. Um, their fluid status, their hemodynamics, their vital signs, um, and of course, their cardiac rhythms, these should be monitored very closely. What's the prognosis of these patients, uh, Cameron, overall? Yeah, so, uh, you know, uh, the outcomes for these patients, in spite of the fact that, you know, they may look very sick when they come in, patients with severe GBS, especially at the nature of their disease, are actually reasonably good. 80% uh, of the patients will be able to walk independently in six months, and, uh, and the number goes up to about 85%. Uh, by one year, uh, in as many as many, as much as sixty percent of the patients by one year, there will be full recovery of motor strength. Uh, however, a small subset, about fifteen percent of the patients, uh, severe motor problems can persist. Uh, in terms of uh, ventilator dependency, uh, about five to ten percent of the patients will have uh, will become ventilator dependent, and uh, these are the patients who obviously have more severe. Um, uh, form of the uh, disease and have more severe weakness. The mortality uh, is about 5% at one year. Uh, however, patients who become ventilator dependent, the mortality uh, is expected would be higher, and that is about 20%. And in addition, relapses can happen uh, in about 10% of the patients. Uh, this occurs, and, uh, uh, and these are typically treated with a course of IVIG or plasmapheresis. And I think it's an important uh, point because we usually have a very narrow view of patients in the ICU. And in this particular case, even though the road would be long with rehab and support, but the, the outcomes are quite good overall in terms of improvement and for many even getting back to, to a normal life. So I think it's important for intensivists when they talk about goals of care and when they talk with patients and counsel them on what to expect. That is correct, and that's a very important point. You know, you have to uh, sort of uh, uh, make it uh, clear to the family as well as the patient that they may look really, really bad from a clinical standpoint in terms of their uh, weakness uh, at the height of their disease or condition when they're in the ICU. However, the road to recovery may be long and requiring a lot of physical therapy rehab, but most patients will recover 
fairly well, reasonably well, um, uh, over the course of the next six months to a year. Excellent. So why don't we switch topics and talk a little bit about myasthenia gravis, which, as you mentioned, is a neuromuscular plate disease that is also commonly seen in acute patients with neuromuscular disorders in the ICU. And just tell us a little bit about what, what, what's the incidence, what is myasthenia gravis, and we can start there. Yeah. So myasthenia gravis, uh, you know, it's an acquired autoimmune disorder. It's the most common disorder of neuromuscular transmission. Uh, classic clinical features are weakness of the skeletal muscles and fatigability on exertion. And in terms of incidence, the annual incidence is 7 to 20 new cases per million population. Uh, the prevalence anywhere from 70 to 320 cases per population. And the prevalence actually has been increasing uh, over the last uh, uh, 60 to 70 years. And that is primarily because of the increased recognition of this condition, aging population, and also patients with myasthenia gravis are living longer. So the prevalence obviously has increased uh, in the last 60 to 70 years or so. Uh, in terms of uh, 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 what age group can it affect, it can affect patients in any age. However, there's a bimodal distribution to the age of onset. There's an early peak, which is seen in the second and third decade of life. Uh, and typically, these patients tend to be uh, females. So there's a female predominance uh, in this, uh, in this uh, subgroup patient. Uh, there, then there's another late peak that is seen in the sixth to eighth decade of life with a more of a male predominance. And in terms of pathophysiology, you mentioned the autoimmune disease. Can you just give us a bit more details in terms of what are the, uh, the antibodies uh, that occur and what happens? Yes. So uh, as I said earlier, it's an acquired autoimmune disorder and it's characterized by production of autoantibodies to the acetylcholine receptors as well as against acetylcholine receptor associated proteins on the postsynaptic muscle membrane. This leads to blockage uh, uh, or prevents uh, binding of acetylcholine to the receptors. In addition, these autoantibodies also induce sort of what we call complement-mediated degradation of the acetylcholine receptors. The result of all of this is that these uh, muscle weakness develops. And in, in addition, over time, the synaptic cleft widens in these patients, and also the number of postsynaptic muscle membrane folds decreases, which is what you expect uh, uh, in a patient where the number of acetylcholine receptors available to the neurotransmitter is decreased. And in terms of diagnosis, how do you diagnose myasthenia gravis? So, uh, the diagnosis is uh, suspected on clinical gra grounds, and uh, uh, other diagnostic modalities available are serological testing uh, to check for or look for acetylcholine receptor antibodies or muscle-specific receptor tyrosine kinase receptor antibodies, um, and in very uh, occasional cases, um, lipoprotein-receptor-related protein uh, uh, for uh, can also be seen. Uh, and in addition to serological testing, electrodiagnostic testing uh, can also be helpful. Uh, these include single fiber uh, EMG and repetitive nerve uh, stimulation. Uh, the repetitive nerve stimulation, typically you would see a decremental action potential with the uh, repeated nerve stimulation, uh, whereas single fiber EMG is probably the most sensitive test for diagnosis, however, it's technically quite uh, it's technical technically a little difficult, uh, but it's also in the you know uh, if you have the expertise available, it does help in establishing the diagnosis. And I think that my my impression, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Cameron, is that most patients that we see as intensivists with myasthenia gravis will have a diagnosis of myasthenia gra gravis made, and we usually see them in the context of a myasthenia. A gravis crisis or in the context of they are undergoing surgery or other uh, critical illness and they come to the ICU. So it's not very common that we do a de novo uh, diagnosis in the ICU. Uh, is that true? That is correct, yeah. Uh, most patients that will present to the ICU will uh, come with what we call a myasthenic crisis, uh, which essentially is defined as uh, neuromuscular weakness to the 
that these patients need some sort of ventilatory support, which could be either intubation and mechanical ventilation or non-invasive ventilation or muscle weakness that delays recovery uh, after uh, surgery or uh, prolongs recovery or delays extubation after surgery. So these patients, I agree, um, most of the time already have established diagnosis of myasthenia gravis. And one of the features uh, in terms of diagnosis that is very common, I guess, is ptosis or weakness in the eyelids. And uh, I remember, I mean, uh, as a resident, we would talk about the, the ice pack test. Could you tell us a little bit about that? The test is essentially based on the principle that neuromuscular transmission improves at lower muscle temperatures. And uh, if you, uh, in patients with myasthenia, ptosis uh, can be overcome by application of direct cooling to the eyelid muscle. That is what the ice pack test is. Very simple. What you do is you take a surgical glove, fill it with ice, and place it on the, on the closed eyelid for two minutes. And then when the ice is removed, the extent of ptosis is immediately assessed and ptosis is considered a positive uh, test result. It's a very simple bedside test. And I think that those are probably much more safe than doing a neostigmine or endo, uh, endonopium uh, injections at the bedside, correct? That is correct. And, uh, and actually, as of, I think, 2016 or 2017, hydrophonium is actually no longer available in the U.S. So it essentially has pretty much gone out of favor, that hydrophonium test. Uh, uh, and just to go back to the ice pack test, the sensitivity is approximately 80% uh, uh, for, the, for the test. And I think that one of the things that you were mentioning was obviously the, 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 the characteristic of fatigability or the fact that with repetitive contraction, the weakness uh, comes up. How does that impact your evaluation of uh, respiratory weakness? Because Perhaps you do vital capacity and it's normal, right? So it doesn't really give you a clear indication of how to follow these patients. Yes. So, uh, in, again, in these patients, uh, you know, in patients that generalize myasthenia, uh, that's where you will have variable sort of uh, 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 combination of bulbar, limb, and respiratory muscle weakness. And, uh, and in, in some cases, the muscle weakness, respiratory muscle weakness can be severe enough to necessitate uh, some sort of ventilatory support. Uh, and again, the initial, uh, uh, initial uh, assessment of these patients would require you know, uh, some basic uh, clinical bedside testing so you can ask them to uh, Start counting. Uh, so single breath. How much count? How much? Uh, how many numbers they can count? Uh, you can look at any evidence of respiratory muscle fatigue. Uh, and again, if you want to get more objective, you can do bedside spirometry testing, including assessment of vital capacity, negative inspiratory force, and/or maximum expiratory pressures in these patients. And one of the uh, differences that I think is important to highlight for the audience and you mentioned it briefly, but I want you to dive in a little bit more, Cameron, is that in general, for Guillain-Barre syndrome, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation is not recommended. So usually when they have issues, we go directly to endotracheal intubation. But you did mention the Guillain-Barre, sorry, in the myasthenia gravis population, that non-invasive ventilation might be helpful. It might be a way of supporting them early on. Could you mention that a little bit more, please? Yes. So... Uh, uh, again, as, as Sergio, you mentioned, in patients with Guillain-Barre syndrome, non-invasive ventilation, has, as, we, as things stand uh, now, uh, today, uh, really has no role because there are very small case series that have shown that uh, patients who were tried on non-invasive ventilation in, in Guillain-Barre syndrome uh, required emergent intubation because after staying stable for a while, these patients developed sudden respiratory deterioration. However, in patients with myasthenia gravis, again, there are small case series where uh, non-invasive ventilation has been used as a bridge to prevent or avoid intubating these patients, sort of as a bridge to recovery. And also, patients who are intubated and, um, and you, are, uh, you want these patients to be liberated from the ventilator, it has also been used as a bridge to ventilation. liberation. Uh, however, so there is some limited literature on that, which again kind of points to the fact that 
myasthenia and Guillain-Barre syndrome uh, are two somewhat different conditions uh, that can present, uh, you know, uh, with both with respiratory uh, failure, uh, but the pathophysiology is different. So uh, in small case series in patients with myasthenia, where non-invasive ventilation was tried as an initial ventilatory strategy, well, the factors that predicted BiPAP failure or non-invasive ventilation failure were baseline hypercapnia, which means that by the time these patients start to get hypercapnic, they probably you would not be able to bridge them to recovery just using non-invasive ventilation. So the key point is that if you do want to try non-invasive ventilation, try it early while at the same time other treatment modalities are being administered to uh, hasten recovery uh, in these patients. So why don't we talk about the, the treatment modalities that are commonly utilized for myasthenia gravis? And I think that there's a distinction between maintenance therapy for myasthenia gravis, which is a chronic disease, uh, uh, as opposed to um, acute, acute uh, as in, in uh, Guillain-Barre, versus how we treat the myasthenic uh, gravis crisis. So why don't you tell us a bit more about that, Cameron? Yeah, so myasthenic crisis, uh, uh, in addition to assessment uh, of the need for ventilatory support, other medical therapies available to us include uh, immunomodulating treatments, uh, and these can be, these are sub subdivided into rapid, rapid immunomodulating treatments, which include the plasma exchange or plasmapheresis and venous immunoglobulin or IVIG. In addition, chronic immunomodulating treatments include glucocorticoids or other immunosuppressive drugs, which uh, in most cases should be initiated uh, at the same time because the effect of the rapid immunomodulating treatment typically lasts for about three to six weeks. Uh, in addition, anticholinesterase agents uh, are typically uh, used for symptomatic treatment, and patients uh, who are in a myasthenic crisis, it is still somewhat controversial whether these patients in the midst of a myasthenic crisis should be on anticholinesterase agents or not. Some people argue that because they do provide some symptomatic improvement that they may be helpful as long as patients are able to handle their secretions and secretions is not a major or significant factor in, their, in these patients. So in terms of rapid immunomodulating treatments, again, IVIG and PLEX are the two uh, therapeutic modalities. Typically, the onset of their action uh, can take anywhere from a few days to up to a week and the maximal effect takes up to three weeks or can take up to three weeks. And the effect of uh, these therapies lasts anywhere from three to six weeks. Uh, the dose for an IVIG is 0.4 grams per kg per day uh, for five days for a total dose of two grams per kg. And for plasma exchange, typically four to six uh, sessions uh, uh, are, um, are given over a period of eight to 10 days. And in terms of, of patients that uh, you mentioned, um, so here another distinction is that corticosteroids do have a very prominent role in the treatment of myasthenia gravis, both uh, chronically, but also in, in crisis that we initiate them because their, their effects will, will occur later, correct? That is correct. And generally, uh, the glucocorticoids are started initially at uh, relatively high doses, anywhere from 60 to 80 milligrams daily prednisone, and uh, their onset of action uh, is relatively later, about two to three weeks from the uh, initiation of the medication, and peaks at about five to six months. Uh, and uh, uh, although, as you mentioned, uh, Sergio, transient weakness uh, or worsening of symptoms uh, can be seen in these patients, which can be actually significant in as many as 50% of the patients. Uh, what you do want is uh, the glucocorticoids to be initiated because after the effects of the plasmapheresis and uh, IVIG, which typically, as I said, lasts for three to six wears off, these patients can have a rebound of their uh, uh, symptoms. And what you want is to... For 
to be on an immunosuppressive agent to suppress the production of autoantibodies. Uh, and, uh, and also, in terms of uh, the worsening of symptoms, typically the, uh, the period uh, where you can have worsening secondary to uh, initiation of corticosteroids is five to 10 days after the initiation. And, and that worsening can last anywhere from uh, five to seven days. So you be very cognizant of that time period when glucocorticoids are initiated and should be uh, uh, in terms of worsening of uh, symptoms uh, that could be related to the use of glucocorticoids. Excellent. And the, the next question I have for you, Cameron, relates to when these patients are on mechanical ventilation, uh, they are receiving obviously acute treatment for their, for their crisis. The regular uh, life um, or the, the regular uh, time frame of these, of these diseases is different than Guillain-Barre, right? So in theory, these patients should have a lower proportion of prolonged mechanical ventilation and tracheostomy. Could you talk about the weaning of these patients? So again, uh, weaning uh, for patients with myasthenia gravis, the general principles are similar. However, uh, in terms of uh, in terms of uh, which is which is that uh, if you have serial measurements of bedside spirometry showing uh, trends uh, in the right direction, improving respiratory muscle strength. Uh, uh, in addition, uh, if these patients while on the ventilator on spontaneous breathing trial, uh, they are they do not have any signs of significant respiratory distress or fatigue. Uh, uh, these patients should be considered for mental liberation. And uh, there's one clinical rule of thumb, especially in myasthenic patients, that ready to wean when they can actually hold their head above the bed. That's a very significant sign that the muscles are muscle strength is improving. Uh, and again, you know, there is the, also the option in these patients, just because the way the disease course is in patients with myasthenic, myasthenia gravis, that uh, of putting these patients on non-invasive ventilation following extubation as a bridge to recovery. Uh, so the percentage of patients who require tracheostomy in this patient population is definitely less than the patients with Guillain-Barre syndrome. And again, a lot of this kind of like goes back to clinicians' experience with these patients, how comfortable they are with trying non-invasive ventilation as a bridge to recovery or as a, as a bridge to vent liberation. Uh, I think that the, the, other, the other thing that is commonly associated with, with myasthenia gravis is worsening of symptoms due to drug interactions. And obviously, in today's ICU, we, we really appreciate the input of our pharmacy colleagues in all these critical ill patients, but are there any specific drugs in the ICU that we should avoid in myasthenia gravis patients? Yeah, so the list of medications that can actually worsen myasthenic symptoms is fairly long. And, uh, you know, um, and I was actually looking at uh, some of these medications, and some very commonly used medications um, uh, can actually exacerbate myasthenic symptoms. Uh, antibiotics, including aminoglycosides, are well known to do that. Uh, some of the fluoroquinolones uh, and some of the uh, beta-lactic uh, antibiotics, ampicillin, and then uh, macrolides uh, such as azithromycin, clarithromycin, uh, and erythromycin. They can all um, exacerbate uh, myasthenic symptoms. Uh, some of the commonly used cardiovascular drugs, such as beta blockers and calcium channel blockers, they can also uh, make uh, symptoms worse. Uh, in addition, uh, Prednisone, we already talked about. Patients can get worse before they get better, so that is, that is well recognized. Uh, some of the antipsychotic agents, such as lithium and uh, chlorpromazine, uh, some anticonvulsants like dilatin and gabapentin. Uh, so these are some of the medications that can uh, make symptoms of myasthenia worse. So I think just, I mean, a word of caution for our, for our listeners when you're dealing with a myasthenic patient is to be very cognizant that several drugs that we commonly utilize can exacerbate symptoms and understand where we stand with that and really, I mean, look into this as we treat these patients. I think, Cameron, that this has been a phenomenal conversation. I, I really appreciate, I mean, a lot of the, the insight that you have on these patients. Like you said earlier, uh, Guillain-Barre is the most common cause of neuromuscular um, uh, weakness in the ICU acutely. 
I think that every clinician has seen these, maybe not in great numbers, but I think that most of our intensivist uh, colleagues have treated these patients or have heard of people who've had Guillain-Barre, so clearly something that happens. And as you said, the incidence of myasthenia gravis continues to increase, so it's more likely that we will see them post-surgically or with crises as they come to the ICU. Uh, we'd like to uh, finish the podcast by asking our guests a couple of questions not related to the clinical topic we discussed. Would that be okay, Cameron? Uh, yes, sure, absolutely. So my first question is, what book or books have influenced you the most, or what books have you gifted most often to others? Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I Not recently, but uh, you know, maybe three years ago, I, I read this book. Uh, I've read others since then, but I think that book kind of like uh, made an impact on me. And uh, it's, it's fairly well known, but uh, it's called uh, How Doctors Think by Jerome Groupman, uh, who is an oncologist and chair of medicine at Harvard Medical School. And it's essentially based on his experiences as an oncologist and also uh, based on his interviews with uh, other prominent physicians. And it's kind of like, uh, I found it very interesting because it's not a very technical uh, book. It's very easy reading. Uh, uh, and it just kind of gives you a window into the mind of, of physicians uh, and kind of like, you know, explores, you know, some of the thought processes, some of the forces behind uh, the decisions that we as physicians make on a daily basis. And I think it's kind of why I found that it kind of helped me in sort of analyzing myself uh, in terms of uh, my decision-making process every day as, as, as I see patients and, you know, and uh, weigh the risks, benefit, pros and cons of each uh, decision, clinical decision that we make in the, uh, in, in, on a daily basis. Excellent. So I would We're recommend that book, actually. I have not read it, but I definitely pick it up and I definitely will include it in the show notes so our, our audience, our listeners can uh, take a look at it. The second question it relates to what do you believe to be true in medicine or life that most other people don't believe? Um, yeah, uh, I think that, you know, over time as you, you know, sort of uh, age, mature, gain more experience, I'm kind of like becoming more and more convinced that in medicine, a lot of times, not in all cases, but a lot of times, uh, and, and, it's, and it's a well-known dictum, you know, that less is more, uh, and that more is not always better. We're kind of like sold this idea that all these technological advances, you know, they're all good, they all help, they all make a difference. Uh, whereas the truth in a lot of the cases is 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 different, is, is you know. So I think that we should be advocates for application of the right amount of medicine. And sometimes, you know, uh, the, the age-old adage that is more may actually be the right approach, you know. That's kind of what I'm, I'm kind of realizing more and more uh, as time goes yeah, on. And I think that, that even though some people have heard that dictum, it's not something that people frequently practice on a regular basis, right? And I think that the recognition at, at all levels that uh, sometimes less not only is more but it's better is, I think, very valuable from design to how we offer treatments to, to patients. I think uh, very powerful. And clearly, I think that uh, most people do not behave in a way that would support this. So I think it's very, very, very uh, great insight, Cameron. And my final question is, what would you like uh, or want every intensivist and advanced practice provider who's listening to this podcast to know? be a quote or a fact? Um, I think that uh, in the ICU, we deal with a lot of end-of-life uh, issues, end-of-life decisions. And I think that, you know, uh, what I'm sort of realizing more and more, that and it, it's very, very important to understand and respect uh, what the priorities, what the goals, what the needs uh of our patients who may be dying in the ICU are, and to sort of minimize suffering as much as possible. Because I think that uh, in our quest to do more and our quest to help help patients, sometimes we forget that dying with dignity is also a basic human right. You know, so that's kind of I would uh, 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 that's that's all I would say about you know sort of uh, 
what I've learned and, and uh, the message that I would pass on to my fellow intensivists. I think it's a great place to stop, Cameron. I think that it's something that we've all very acutely aware of. I mean, as we experience this wonderful profession, but definitely, I mean, listening to the voice of our patients, to their preferences, and respecting that, I think, is uh, of utmost importance, especially in patients who are uh, dying. So again, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. I learned a lot, and I'm sure this will be very valuable for our audience. And we hope to have you back to talk about other neurocritical care topics. Thank you so much, Sergio, again, for, for having me and for the opportunity to participate in this, in this podcast. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to Critical Matters. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play. You can also listen at www.soundphysicians.com podcast.